Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. right to it right now. He is the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System, Richard Claret, of course, of Columbia University, and truly one of our noted academics on monetary policy, assisting Jerome Powell at every step of the way. Vice Chairman uh, John Farrow and Tom Keene, good morning uh, to you. Good morning. Uh, I look, Richard Claret, at where we are, and I want to go back to your important paper, The Science of Monetary Policy, with Gallian and, and, uh, Galli and Gertler of years ago. And you lead with a quote from another vice chairman, Alan Blinder, who talks about the practicing of the dark art. Give us the state of the practicing of the dark art of the Fed, given this original moment in American history. Well, thank you, Tom. And, and, and as Alan and we all, and I've certainly believed there's, there's as much or probably much more art than science in monetary policy, but it's good to refer to some of that uh, as well. I think, I think that the, the Federal Reserve uh, in August adopted a new framework. It's an evolution, but it's a robust uh, evolution. And, and primarily it is outcome-based. Um, our goals are maximum employment and price stability. And we want our policy to be robust if our models uh, break down. Um, and we can still do monetary policy, but we're going to be more outcome-based uh, and less out outlook-based. And I think that served us well uh, in the pandemic, and I think it will serve us well in the years ahead. Could you characterize that as a commitment to being late instead of being early? Well, what we've said in September of last year, following our framework announcement in August, is that we, are, we do not expect to lift off until a three-condition are met. First, that inflation actually gets to 2%. We want to see actual inflation for at least a year or 2%. And we want that to be sustained, not just one and done. Secondly, we want to be uh, looking at labor market indicators that are consistent with a fully employed um, economy. And third, we want that to be sustained. We think that's appropriate since we've hit the effective lower bound. Inflation's been below our target for most of the last 10 uh, years. And under those circumstances, that is a good uh, policy. You are correct that in the past, the Fed was more preemptive. And indeed, my research suggested that if you've got good models, you want to be preemptive. But if the models are not serving you well, you're more robust if you're looking at actual data. So that's that's the way I characterize it, John. The conversation, as you know, Vice Chair Clarida, right now is over what substantial progress actually is. You're familiar with the debate. We talk about it almost every single day on programs like this. Do you think it's necessary to define what substantial progress actually is? Well, first of all, it's actual progress. I think that's an important point. It's not projected progress. It's, it's hard numbers on the labor market and, and on prices. That's the first point. Secondly, um, you know, we're early on in this year. I know we've already sort of penciled in six or seven percent growth and a big fall in unemployment. But under outcome based policy, we really want to see that uh, as as Chair Powell has indicated and I've under indicated as we go through the year, as the data comes in, as we release our SEP projections based on that incoming data, uh, we will have a sense on on where we are relative to that progress. And as Chair Powell has also indicated, 
um, as we think we are making that progress, we will communicate that to uh, people who uh, listen to our communication. And so I think that this is really where we want to be. It's actual progress. It's not projected progress. And as we go through the year, we will be informing the public about our views on that progress. So, Rich, let's talk about it right now. You've talked about the conditions needed for liftoff, but we haven't really defined them. Conditions consistent with full employment. I don't know what that is. I'm no idea if you'll tell me. We're talking about substantial progress, but it needs to be actual, not forecast. But I still don't know what progress actually is. So you don't plan to define what substantial further progress is. You've promised to give markets warning before changing policy. How exactly do you plan to do that? Well, certainly we have uh, we have eight meetings a year. The chair does a press conference at, at each of those meetings. We release a summary of economic projections at four uh, of those uh, meetings. And so we will have Apple uh, opportunity. And again, the chair would not have been making those comments publicly if, if he was not committed to it. So we'll have many opportunities as, as the actual data comes in uh, to, to inform uh, Fed observers about our assessment of are we making that progress. Vice Chairman, the critics, and as you know, there are many critics, they have a habit of coming out Friday for weekend consumption, have a true (laughs) fear of inflation. You're Andrea Aiello running your research for monetary affairs is a fabulous phrase of the core and the crust, looking at core inflation, looking at the dynamics of energy. It gets to the visceral fear that our radio and TV listeners have. Are you afraid of inflation? Should we fear inflation? inflation? Well, the reality is we have a dual mandate and, and half of that is is price stability. Um, and so the Federal Reserve, every Federal Reserve since Paul Volcker's leadership has been committed to that. The Powell Fed is too. But, but Tom, um, 2% as a ceiling, which is in effect the way many thought of our prior policy, also does not serve the economy uh, well, it has, in, in fact, serious implications for the labor market and prosperity. And so essentially what we've said is that we want inflation outcomes that keep inflation expectations anchored at 2%. And that's going to mean sometimes we'll be above 2 and sometimes we'll be um, below. Uh, we focus on inflation expectations uh, intensely. We have a new index of common inflation expectations. I would say, and we've indicated, Tom, uh, that because of the nature of the pandemic shock uh, a year ago, as we move through 2021 on a year-over-year basis, headline inflation is going to likely move above 2% because we're going to be comparing this year's prices with last year's collapsing prices. But we expect in our baseline most of that to be transitory and for inflation to return later this year to around uh, 2%. Mm-hmm. That's, our, that's our baseline. Let me also say that around the baseline, there are risks on both sides. Uh, And in the risk case in which inflation were to begin to move above a level consistent with price stability, we would have the tools to address that. And I'm confident that we would under that under that risk scenario. Fold in the balance sheet, and that can be the twin deficits, a comparison of the fiscal situation to GDP and, of course, trade dynamics as well. What do we do with the sixth standard deviation move in the twin deficit out, say, two years? Are you optimistic we can stabilize that terrible trend? Are you optimistic that we can somehow revert to a better outcome? Well, you are correct, Tom, uh, and I think this was pointed out in the IMF World Bank meetings this week um, that because the U.S., for a variety of reasons, including uh, better progress on vaccination and very robust policy support, 
is going to be growing rapidly this year compared to other countries. Uh, and what we tend to see historically is that when the U.S. grows faster than most of the rest of the world, some of that spills into our imports and we have a bigger trade deficit. Uh, from the point of view of the rest of the world, that's a good thing, that we're more of a locomotive uh, than uh, caboose. And so I would expect uh, the current account deficit to widen uh, this year and next under the baseline uh, scenario. It's not something now that that is a concern uh, because uh, capital flows into the U.S. in part because uh, of our, our rates relative to the rest of the world. So no, it, it's not a concern. Obviously, you know, any circumstance with a big imbalance can become a concern, but it's not a concern now to me. Our colleague and good friend, Michael McKee, reached out earlier this morning, Rich, and indicated that Laurie Logan, who I'm sure you're familiar with, of course, over at the New York oh. Fed, suggested last night that they'll be changing the composition of its QE purchases to match the outstanding US debt profile. Can you elaborate a little bit on the objectives behind that, Rich? Sure. Uh, and Laurie is a fine colleague and, and has done a fabulous job in my three years at the, at the board. So I'm lucky to be able to work with her. What Laurie said in those remarks is essentially restating what has been our policy uh, for some time uh, now, uh, which is that as we're purchasing Treasury uh, securities, uh, we're doing so in the secondary market. And we'd like those purchases to roughly match uh, the outstanding uh, the supply of treasuries in the market according to different uh, maturities. And so, you know, as the treasury changes its issuance uh, patterns, then if we would, of course, adapt our program to match those those outstanding. So I don't think she was really trying to make news there. It's really just articulating what our policy has been for, for some time. You wouldn't characterize this as Operation Twist then? I, I would not characterize it as Operation Twist. Michael McKee will be happy that we addressed that particular question, sir. Uh, Early, John, I just Mike. think, John, that was on the edge of rude, just so <laughs> you know. Well, I had to bring it up. Earlier on in the conversation, Rich, you mentioned transitory, and we've been playing the drinking game transitory. Every time the vice chairman yourself speaks, every time the chairman speaks, transitory, transitory, transitory. So here's my question, Rich. As the year progresses, how will you know if you're wrong, that it's not just transitory? How will sure. you know if you're wrong? Well, uh, the, the simplest answer is that if inflation uh, at the end of the year uh, is, has not declined from where it is in the middle of the year, that'll be some good uh, evidence. Um, uh, I also think that you know, we look at both headline and core uh, measures. And let me also say, John, because not surprisingly, it's a good question that this show tends to ask good questions. Oh, thank um, you. The reality, the, the rea sometimes not, not always, <laughs> but, I, but I would say that, that it, an important point to note, and I've made this point several times, so let me repeat it. Sure. There is a, there is a lot of pent-up demand in the economy. We have a lot of fiscal support. You know, monetary policy's been all in for 13 months, but there's a lot of pent-up supply in the economy, eight and a half million jobs short of where we were 13 months uh, ago. Uh, a lot of small businesses shut down. And so we do think the economy is going to reopen. Uh, so both supply and demand will be in play. And there could be some temporary imbalances in certain sectors, uh, so-called bottleneck, bottleneck effects. But again, we would expect those to be transitory. And as the year progresses and as we go into next year, uh, if they're not, then we'll have to take that into account, certainly. So, Rich, that I, was the I point. I should say, John, go I on. should also say Please do. that I... I should also say that I consult uh, my Bloomberg uh, regularly, uh, uh, and my favorite, one of my favorite screens is ECFC, where you accumulate all the individual yep. forecasts for the economy, uh, and your entire Bloomberg panel shows a similar projection. Now, again, forecasting is hard. That's why we do it a lot. Uh, but the baseline view, even given the fiscal package, uh, is that most of the move above 2% inflation we see this spring 
uh, should revert back later this year. I'm looking at ECFC right now, 2.1% 21, 2% 22, 2.23. You mentioned something important though, Rich, and it wasn't lost on me. You talked about that turn from 21 into 22. Is that the ultimate test for you? That you won't really know until we get a little bit deeper into early 22 to draw that distinction between whether something is transitory or perhaps a little bit more persistent? Well, sure. I think I, I, I just think as, as time, you know, as time goes on, you, you learn more about about how the economy is going to adapt. I think I saw heard some sound. You must have had my good friend Ken Rogoff on at one point. And I think Ken, as usual, brings up an excellent observation, which is that this is a very unusual shock. A global shutdown, a shutdown of the global economy through a tr truly exogenous event, I think, has never happened in my professional career because it impacted both supply and demand. So we're going to be learning as sectors come back uh, online, and I'm sure there'll be surprises uh, along the way, and we need to be you know, attuned and attentive uh, to the data flow. But yes, of course, and also, John, uh, you know, yes, we, we welcome the 900,000 plus jobs that are gained, but there's still a hole in the, in the labor market, and we'll begin to get a better sense as we go through this calendar year about how, how rapid that progress is and how that is showing up in other uh, indicators of uh, the labor market. So, of course, I think, yeah. Uh, Vice, Vice Chairman, a final question, if we could. We did speak with Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard today, and he traced a path in our academics back to uh, Dr. Mundell, Robert Mundell, passing at 88 this uh, week. Richard Clarida, you had the privilege of not only reading Mundell and doing Mundell, but working with Mundell at Columbia University. Your thoughts on what he gave to Kenneth Rogoff, Richard Clarida, and the rest of us? Well, it, it, uh, I was very saddened uh, when I heard the news this week. Bob was a mentor and a friend for 30 uh, years. It was one of the thrills of my career to, to be a colleague of his, because as a global macro, all global and macro economists today are either students of Mundell or students of students of Mundell in one way or the other. And that was certainly true with me. He's truly the father of the euro. Uh, expansive, creative, a wonderful gentleman, uh, and really one of the great, great economists of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, will be sorely missed both as a human being uh, and as a scholar. And I think everyone here at Bloomberg Surveillance and a team across the Bloomberg universe echo those comments. Hey, Rich, always great to catch up with you, sir. I think we're all looking forward to just getting into the same room again. I look forward to doing that soon, maybe later you this bet. year down in D.C. Richard Clarida, Vice Chair of the Federal Reserve. Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard University on the dollar in the place within our global system. Professor Rogoff, I mentioned to Catherine Mann this line that goes from modern economics of you and Obsfeld back through Jacob Frankel to the founding of Robert Mundell. In all of that is the politician Valerie Giscard d'Estaing of France who talked about the U.S. dollar exorbitant privilege. Mundell talked about this for years and years. Are we finally here where we could lose our exorbitant privilege? Well, first, let me say it's a great tragedy that we've lost Robert Mundell. I regard him as my intellectual grandfather. He was my thesis advisor, Rudy Dornbush's thesis advisor, and certainly an incredibly original scholar. Uh, no, I don't think we're about to lose our exorbitant privilege tomorrow. Uh, but there's no question that part of what's strengthened it over the last 10, 20 years is that China's had a very dollar-centric policy. They stabilized against the dollar. Now it's a mix of the dollar and the euro, but the dollar and the euro aren't moving that much. 
And as long as that holds up, I think the U.S. exorbitant privilege is solid, but it might not hold up forever. It's really not an optimal policy for China. And I might add that if you look at the longer end of uh, five-year, 10-year debt uh, and look at, say, the covered comparisons, the U.S. no longer gets any exorbitant privilege. It's really only on short debt. Ken Rogoff, the basic theme of the less sophisticated is that China, not as at war with us, but certainly has a different political system and has a new robust offense. Can they use renminbi as a weapon? Can you weaponize a currency? Look, they view themselves as doing very well, and they're not looking to rock the boat. Their technocrats have been telling them for two decades almost now you really should have an inflation targeting regime like everybody else. Let us be a little bit more independent central bank. We can keep things stable. We shouldn't be following around the dollar for lots of reasons. Uh, the politicians have said, you know, things are going great. Let's not do that. Uh, they are looking at the longer run and they thoroughly intend for the renminbi first to be co-equal with the dollar, at least with the euro and maybe eventually take over. Uh, if we look at a long enough horizon, China continues to rise, that'll be hard to stop. But I, I don't think they're looking to do anything quickly. That said, they put out this new, uh, starting put out a new digital central bank currency, which certainly has the seeds of being able to replace the dollar. Ken, as you see things right now, what do you think is the biggest threat to dollar hegemony? Is it a decision that America could make or a decision that could be made elsewhere? I think it would come from, you know, a shock to the system. Dollar hegemony is not something that's going to go away overnight. Typically, when you get on top, you keep it for a century or more. We've had it for a century, uh, certainly since world, the end of World War I. Uh, so it's, it's, but on the other hand, if you're, let's say, piling up 60% of the global public and corporate debt uh, in the world, as the U.S. is sort of doing, it just dominates uh, debt issuance markets, and you're counting on that, and that can't go away quickly. It's a fragility, and the late Emmanuel Farhi, together with uh, Matteo Maggiore at Stanford, Farhi was my colleague, uh, wrote this wonderful paper about, you know, the hegemon is tempted to push things, to take advantage of this exorbitant privilege and create fragility that might be a reasonable calculus for the United States, but not for the world as a whole. So when we talk about that fragility right now, Ken, where's the biggest source of it, do you think? Do you think it is in the debt market? Boy, um, well, certainly if interest rates went up, I just it would turn the world upside down. I think we'll find out a lot when Europe gets out of this. When the vaccines come, that's really the biggest difference between the U.S. and Europe. The vaccines come as long as Europe, which is roughly as big as the United States, is sort of stuck in the mud. It's very hard to tell what's going on with global interest rates, what's going on with inflation. So I think, I think the U.S. has a while to run before that happens. But when it does, I, I don't know what's next. Obviously, this has been a very hard pandemic to call, particularly because the <laughs> Uh, waves of it, and the vaccines have been vastly more successful than I think almost anyone expected. Ken Rogoff, this time is different. 
a book from another time and place, and I'll have the clearest recommend recollection. I think I was at your book party, and I remember opening, and there was that single page you put together with Carmen on the finances of the Spanish Armada, and it was, you know, the, the Spanish government falling apart. Is our debt structure now Spanish government equivalent when they launched the Armada? I mean, are we in that bad a condition? Well, listen, the, if the Armada hadn't crashed because of the weather, <laughs> uh, we'd be living in a different world history. Now, I think, I think it'd take a shock to the system, just a massive shock of which I can't even imagine. Uh, but, you know, we've had shocks to the system, which we can't even imagine uh, roughly twice in the last 12 years. So we're more vulnerable than we were. On the other hand, by the way, I just want to be clear. I mean, I think it makes perfect sense what President Biden's doing, certainly politically, it mm -hmm. makes sense what he's doing. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in this terrible situation and he's sort of getting done what he thinks he can get done. And there are parts of the infrastructure bill that make a lot of sense. There are a lot of things we could do in this country addressing inequality. Right. I, I will say at the end of the day, you have to raise taxes to pay for this. If we're just not the necessarily the physical infrastructure, but the what they're calling the social infrastructures transfer programs. Great. But you got to pay for it. Uh, Ken Rogoff, James Diamond wrote a 66 page letter this week. He running J.P. Morgan. And part of the discussion is we have two quarters of boom. And then there's a question about how we come out of a boom, the runway. Do we drop off sharply? Do we add, uh, ease out of it, if you will? Mr. Diamond, very optimistic about an extended good GDP in America. What is the academic history of how we come off a boom economy or are we flying blind? Well, look, we are to some extent flying blind here. This pandemic is quite different than the financial crisis. People who, you know, say they're almost exactly the same thing. That's just crazy. We don't know uh, what's next. If I go back to, I mentioned Robert Mundell, my intellectual grandfather, his student, Rudy Dornbush, had a great book uh, 20 years ago with Sebastian Edwards at UCLA. And a theme of it is that populism actually works great for a while. Uh, and their timeline was sort of two to four years, you get a boom, but then you get problems at the end of the boom. The problem, you know, we talk about, will there be inflation? Will something go wrong? Larry Summers, you mentioned, you know, raised the point. Uh, I, I don't think it's an immediate problem, but obviously if at some point you run the war economy and don't stop, it will be a problem. And politically, it may not be that easy to stop after a couple of years. Ken, just a final question for me, if I can. On the transitory argument around inflation, we'll catch up with the Federal Reserve Vice Chair a little bit later. How will we know if they're wrong? When will we know? When's the real test for you? I, I don't think we'll know for a while. I, I don't think it's just going to blow up. That's, it's possible, you know, that some commodity price changes will spike inflation for a while. But the, the core inflation expectations are very sluggish. They're very slow to move. On the other hand, if you keep running a war economy, you just undermine all the things underlying those expectations. And people say it's never going to stop. It will change. That was a theme of Dornbush's book, that uh, populism, if you just keep doing it for too long, blows up. And that's a political question. Uh, you know, if uh, you get a lot of stimulus and people say, hey, that worked great. Let's do it again. Hey, that worked yep. great. Let's keep doing it. That's how you got into trouble.
Hey, Ken, it's going to catch you up. It's John, good to see you. John, I think I got, I got the book already up and out on Twitter. John, Have 412 you? pages, Dornbush Edwards. John, I think that's light reading for you this weekend. Yeah, thanks for that, Tom. What are you giving us reading for the weekend? Yeah, Emily absolutely. Wilkins, me, Kenneth Rogoff there, Harvard University professor of economics and public policy. Ken, thank you. It has been a terrific day of economics, including Professor Rogoff, Professor Clarida, now Vice Chairman of the Federal Reserve System. And we finished strong because Rogoff and Clarida listen to the laureate Angus Deaton. I will not mince words. The gentleman from Princeton is our definitive voice on our inequalities. It is front and center for all of us in our economics and our politics. His new book is also definitive. Also, I should say, it is Francine Lacroix's book of the year. And we're thrilled to have Angus Deaton on with us. He looks as the despair uh, that is out there. Professor uh, Deaton, how bad is our inequality? What is original about our 2021 inequality? Well, everything's different in the pandemic. So one of the things that um, one's most worried about inequality during the pandemic is the pandemic is affecting different people differently. Um, and some people like you and me are staying at home and um, talking to each other over the web while others are out there um, risking their lives. And what I'm afraid of is that these splits during COVID um, will exacerbate um, differences that were already there and were festering in America and surround the issues of deaths of despair that Anne Case and I have been writing about. Do you believe that we have a political will to at least nudge our inequalities in a better direction? Well, we certainly have some people and the current administration, the Biden administration, is much more interested in doing that than the previous administration was, but it's very early days yet. Um, the American Rescue Act certainly would help with income inequality because so much of it is targeted towards less well-off people. Um, whether the measures in the um, infrastructure plan will go through is not clear to me right now. What do we do with our American individualism? There's a voice in America that says inequality comes from our individualistic effort. And of course, that buttresses up against those more societal, those more all-encompassing. How do we stand on our individualism and how do we move that forward and sustain that as we try to get away from this inequality? Well, I think the individualism is incredibly important, and I don't really think it's very much at risk, um, to tell you the truth. Um, we've focused on the individualistic aspect for a very long time, and it's brought us great benefits. I mean, you know, the wonderful benefits of modern capitalism, which have helped many. But, you know, we've got to make sure, um, for those of us who've done well out of this, that other people share in that too. And one of the biggest divisions in America today, and one of the riskiest ones, is that an educated elite, people broadly who have a four-year college degree, have been doing extremely well for the last 50 years. Whereas for the people without a college degree, um, they've seen a 50-year trend of downward um, wages, downward labor force participation, and, you know, we'll tear our country apart if we don't share. Angus, what is so important here, and I believe you and I talked about this at Davos two years ago, and I'm going to believe nothing has changed here as well, is the impute of technology 
upon this debate. We try to look out 10 years or 20 years or half a century to what this profound technology means. What do you think it will mean for society? Well, less than some people think, I think. I think this vision of a world in which there's no jobs at all and everything is done by robots is science fiction, was then, is now, and probably ever will be. Um, there's a lot of things we can do, though, to help provide um, good jobs for less educated Americans or to stop destroying good jobs for less educated Americans, like subsidizing um, the introduction of robots, for instance, which we're doing right now, or having a healthcare system which is gutting the labor market for less educated folks. But I mean, Angus, what is so important here, and I'm going to go to a chapter in Deaths of Despair, which is Things Come Apart. A huge body of our radio and TV audience believe whatever their background, whatever their wealth, maybe they're in the highest tax bracket in New York State. The fact is they look at this country and say things are coming apart. How do the elites engage this conversation, given the political maelstrom of Washington? I think it would be really good for us to talk together better than we do right now. Um, I think it's very important for those of us who do belong to the educated elite to listen to the other people. Um, one of the things I keep hearing people saying is, do you hear us now? And, you know, <laughs> um, rioting at the Capitol or, you know, voting for someone I regarded as a very destructive president or howls of protest and perhaps those would be less severe if we'd been listening harder and a little longer and not just celebrating the undoubted triumphs of capitalism, but understanding that there's two thirds of the population who are not benefiting very much from it, whose life expectancy is falling. Even that, which is a pretty fundamental thing, even that's falling for the last 10 years for people without a bachelor's degree. Angus Deaton, thank you so much. The Laureate from Princeton, and of course, the new book, Death of Despair with Anne at Case. John, we can do the transitory drinking game with one Anthony Crescenzi. We can do that right now. Tony Crescenzi joins us, PIMCO Portfolio Manager and Market Strategist. Tony, great to catch up, sir. You've called it the great head fake, the great inflation head fake of the next couple of months. Can you walk us through it? Well, the inflation rate, because of a decline in prices that was uh, seen last year after COVID hit, um, that decline uh, will be met by a year-over-year gain, we, we think, in the Consumer Price Index, the CPI, not the PCE that the Fed targets, of 2.2% or so uh, from the mid-1s that we've seen of late. Uh, but then we see it by year-end moving down back to 1.7% or so. It, it'll climb, we think, by the end of 2022 to 2.2. Now, the significance of that uh, in terms of Fed policy is that a 2.2% CPI at the end of next year probably means a PCE, personal consumption expenditures deflator, of something less than 2%. Now, the Fed has said it won't raise its policy rate until the inflation rate has been at 2% for about a year and show signs of accelerating to above 2% for some time. And so the market now, looking at euro dollar futures for December 22, they're priced today for the Fed to raise its policy rate by a full quarter point by the end of next year. So we would say that it's highly improbable and that more likely the first rate hike occurs somewhere in the end of 2023. So there's some value to be harvested in the front end of the yield curve for the uh, 
bet that the market is making on the Fed moving early. Sounds like you're in line with the Federal Reserve then and their outlook, Tony, that the next couple of weeks, next few months is going to be a head fake that maybe you choose the word transitory. As for substantial improvement, progress towards their goals, do you think they need to define that? Is that necessary? Yes, uh, it is, but uh, the markets will define it for uh, its themselves. Um, but the, the, the type of improvement that's a little bit more vague and will be more difficult to discern <clears throat> is this idea of a broad and inclusive gain in employment. It wants maximum employment, as it say, stated August 27th of last year in its long statement on longer-run <clears throat> goals and monetary policy strategy, that the pursuit of maximum employment is a broad and inclusive goal. This likely means an, a jobless rate of under 4%, Keep in mind, by the way, even after last week's strong jobs report, there still remained about 8 million people unemployed relative to pre-COVID. So there's a long way to go on that front. And to define broad and inclusive, it means more women in the workforce, more minorities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's, that'll take <clears throat> some time. And this, this is why that December 2022 view is wrongheaded. Mm -hmm. Anthony Tom King, good morning to you. I was just reading last night, light reading Steigums. I was going through the 1,200 pages of the Crescenzi Tome, and on page 398, uh, Tony, you talk about don't fight the Fed, follow it. How do we follow a Fed if the Fed is as ex-post as it's been since McChesney Martin? I don't understand. That's the strategic bond investor, folks. Look for that film just signed at the Sunset Tower in London, a film. <laughs> you'll see that Memorial Day 2024. I'm talking about Steigums as like classic. But, Tony, how do, we, how do we react to a Fed that's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting? Well, here's how to think about it. Um, there are three components of a bond yield, expected short rates, expected inflation, and what's called the term premium, the extra yield that a bond investor wants for risk. Now, in the past, one might say by the Fed keeping, by following the Fed, you'd say, well, the Fed's keeping the funds rate low, so shouldn't all yields be low? Uh, the answer right now, and markets have already given their uh, vote, is no, because the the fact that the Fed will be keeping the short rate low means the two other components, so the expected short rate part is good for the bond market, but the two other components are, are free to go. Uh, in other words, inflation expectations right. might rise faster, and so might the term premium, which has okay, gone up. Um, yes, Tony, I, I, I think gone. this is so important, but what the heart of the matter is for our listeners and viewers is out somewhere in 23 or late 22 a fed waiting and waiting and waiting and then the market's going to react to it what do you anticipate well this is this there'll be numerous tests of the fed that the fed will have to reply to over time and you'll want to ask Rich clarita whether he still believes and i'm sure he does um, in this idea of a new neutral, the new neutral thesis that he helped develop at PEMCO in 2014. The new neutral means the Fed thinks that the neutral policy rate is lower than it today than it used to be. Uh, in the past, it might have been, call it 3% or so, uh, or even 4%. Uh, today, it's probably in the low twos. And so we want to know if the Fed still believes that. And um, the tests will come frequently because when the inflation rate does, if it ever does get back up to the level the Fed wants, low twos on the PCE, the markets will test the Fed to see if it will react to it because the markets will be worried about inflation. That's where those other two components will require uh, a different sort of policeman on the inflation beat, the bond vigilante might come back, as you saw recently. So those um, periods, like we've seen recently, will return uh, now and then. But in the end, the inflation rate 
probably won't rise materially. That's our belief. And nor will the federal funds rate call it somewhere in the twos, most likely. But uh, that test is yet to come. So in your mind, Tony, nothing about this pandemic has shamed the tra- changed the trajectory of the economy going into the pandemic. In the next couple of years, we'll be back to normal. Well, the, in the U.S., we're expecting about 7% growth this year. We call it 3% next year, and the growth will be the best in 40 years. Yeah. But there are aspects of growth in, the, in this coming decade. Uh, you could say there's a transformation underway. It'll be more digital, more inclusive, and more green. So it'll be a very different sort of economy. You see this benefiting, for example, the semiconductor industry. The semiconductors will be a component of the green economy. Think of a, a, a charging station for electric vehicle. It requires semiconductors. Cars these days require more semiconductors so it'll be a there'll be a transformation and it'll be more focused on the true drivers of growth investments in people and in things capital those are the major drivers along with of course total factor productivity how we use people's skills how we use the things in place so there is a major transformation underway that could mean faster growth when we think uh, it may mean about a two-tenth or so gain in uh, GDP this decade relative to last, simply because we're investing in people and in things. But whether that leads to meaningful, meaningfully more inflation, we would doubt it right now. Tony, good to see you. As always, Tony Crescenti here. Thanks, Pimco Tom. Portfolio Manager and Market Strategist. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.